Hello, this is Debbie Reynolds of Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast. Today, our special guest is Alan Woods, who is a genius, in my opinion. Uh, He's self-taught, a computer whiz, as well as someone who's very deeply entrenched in data organization and also data privacy. Uh, He created the website, The Performance Organizers, where he works with structured data and also is very much an expert on the internet, how the internet works and how individuals' rights need to be protected when you're dealing with websites. Very happy to talk with Alan today. He's been such a mentor and a good friend to me over the years, and we welcome him. You and I have had so many conversations, you know, via LinkedIn and posts and comments and, you know, private messages. I know sometimes I'm up late at night and you're texting, oh, you should look at this, you should look at that. Um, I think at one point we sort of geeked out about ITAR. That's right. <laughs> but I'd love for, for you to introduce yourself. I know that you're, you're retired and we're, we're trying to keep you from being retired. <laughs> Pull you back into other things. But you have a fascinating background, you know, about the military, your interest in uh, technology, your very skill in, in, in structuring uh, information or systems. And, and always I'm uh, fascinated by your work related to, you know, websites and how that impacts individuals. I'll give you a brief introduction. Um, for anybody that wants to, it's, it's the same kind of thing I put up on LinkedIn. When I was 17, I was a bit of a rogue at school, left school with no qualifications, joined the military, and spent the next 24 years doing what soldiers do, which is basically getting drunk all over the planet. At around about the 15-year point, I decided to retrain on something after many years on operational service, and it happened to be on IT. And I did the classic uh, fund yourself through college things for the next seven years and also spent the last two years of my service in a military small systems group. And that's basically where I learned my trade. Um, by the time in terms of training and qualification, I mean, I was training for seven years on and off in IT. Um, by the time of uh, leaving the army, I was described as the backbone of my core programming effort um, by my then boss. Um, I then studied for longer, ended up being a chartered member of the British Computer Society, but spent the rest of the time working for the Ministry of Defence on all kinds of things. I think it was partly because I trained in IT and qualified in IT at the point of which PCs started to proliferate and I could make the things do things that other people couldn't. Um, My last job was uh, riding shotgun on the user assurance testing for the Voyager program, which is the air tankers. Um, I wrote the FEMOD's first health working health and safety information system, which is how I got onto ITAR because that brought me into all kinds of things to do with hazardous materials. And just about everything inside of defense, quite obviously, is about information management, uh, security like you wouldn't believe, and so on and so forth. Um, I retired uh, two years ago now, um, but when the GDPR came out, um, I took a look at it got to Article 17 and had the biggest smile on my face. It's it's just not that real. 17 is the right to be forgotten because it struck me that uh, for inside the wire, 
given the information management capabilities which the military has, which are extensive, there were things that um, Article 17 by itself, um, where I knew were extremely difficult to pull off, document redaction and so on being just one of them. Um, so I decided to post uh, just an old geek's witterings, for want of a better phrase. And I posted regularly once a week at about the same time. And by the time I left, I was getting 5,000 views. So it must have been going down well somewhere. And publishing stuff on the basis of one of the difficulties with all of this is, is that it is hideously complicated. There's no way around it. And I decided to try and post by explanation and demonstration. So the posts I would put up would be documents with slide decks, with a video over the top. So hopefully everyone's learning Scouse now. It was an interesting thing to do. What it also did was taught me a lot. And uh, one of the things that I'm quite happy saying is that the law is flawed in so many ways. It is very much behind the curve, technologically speaking, but it's the best they've got at the moment. And that's me in a nutshell. Uh, now I'm just an old guy sitting in a cupboard <laughs> doing Waldorf impressions. With the dog. With a dog, yeah. You'll hear him shortly. Uh, he's a little tiny terrier. We tried to pass him off as a toy Alsatian. Oh, my goodness. Well, I would love to hear your thoughts uh, uh, about shrimps, too. We were talking. Actually, I was joking before before we even started recording. We just got, got into the thick of things. But I would love to hear your thoughts about that decision and its impact. I think it is probably a very good dissertation of the law and the nature of the conflict between EU law and the way US law is uh, to do with data transfer is structured. But I also think it was technologically illiterate. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that it was, in effect, a no-warning edict. Now, when I read it, uh, and it was another jaw-dropping moment, you go back and read it again. What it did for me was, uh, I used to run a website which contained all of the stuff I put up, and it, it did stuff like show browser fingerprints. It brought about a need to review... Uh, I was going to go, I was wondering how I could fund the website and keep it going on a voluntary basis. But one of the things I decided to do was look into putting up one of these uh, 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 donate buttons and so on. And I put the code up and then thought, well, best check it, see what's going on, what it's doing. And that took me into a world of uh, complexity. It's just not real. There was nobody doing anything uh, illegal, but what the Schrems 2 judgment meant was that any transaction data going into the US would, as uh, given that the Schrems 2 judgment was in effect an, an edict, um, which just wasn't viable. Now, again, it's a matter of uh, the way the world, I think it's been astounding over the last five years about the way the world has become even more connected than it was, say, 10 years ago. We've got a vacuum cleaner, a RoboVac. I've watched that go round the room and it's mapping my house. So now I trap it in between four chairs and let it bash its head against the four chairs sooner than let it continue. The, the fact of the matter is that you can make as many judgments like that as you like. Implementing them is another thing entirely. Absolutely. Um, and the degree of, especially as an edict with no warning, it just made no sense to me. None whatsoever. And 
it's from the the big things like where cables come from the US to Europe, uh, undersea cables and all the rest of it. The vast majority of them rock up on the UK. And again, because of other things like Brexit and what have you, that's going to present even more, uh, to my mind, transfer problems. Absolutely. Which it just isn't, the law just isn't geared to cope with it. It just, and, and furthermore, people can't cope with it and can comply with the law as it stands, I don't think, without a whole raft of other associated tasks. I feel like there's always this tension between law and technology. Obviously, technology goes farther ahead than law, but I think it's a danger when there are laws being passed about technology without the understanding of what it takes to actually accomplish uh, what's been asked. That's right. Um, I mean, it it is a matter of uh, just the scale of the business going through London um, in terms of money. It's in the trillions of dollars. Right. Um, And it's all very well. uh, People making a decision to say you must stop uh, transferring data because of FISA or whatever. It is a matter of how do you stop it? Right. Because nobody in their right mind is going to stop that volume of data going through anywhere, really. It, it really doesn't matter. No. So it's uh, a matter of the judges were no doubt right in what they said, but the way they went about it uh, as an edict just wasn't feasible. Yeah, I totally agree. I love your thoughts about Brexit. I just posted a video last night about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we are never going to get adequacy. You don't think so? No, I don't at all. Uh, the, in much the same way, for much the same kind of reason, as uh, there will never be agreement between the US government and the European government about the nature of the legal protections being offered. Right. Um if we just take the US for the minute, much of the law so that the EU objects to stems, I believe, straight out of 9-11. Oh, absolutely. And there is no way on this planet that any US president or Congress is going to change that no. at the behest of a foreign government. The UK has similar laws in place, so the uh, Investigatory Powers Act and what have you, and the UK Data Protection Act uh, contains some rather... Thought-provoking clauses, I think, is the best way to, to describe it, um, which I can't see the EU agreeing with. Um, and again, it's the same situation applies. Uh, there's a bit of brickmanship going on, but there also has to be a bit of practical reality. Yeah, that's true. But I, as adequacy as it stands within under the GDPR, I don't think it's possible or feasible. Wow. I was hoping that it would be, but I knew the, especially... Um, I don't know, maybe we could talk a little bit about the Cloud Act, too. I did a video about that I'm posting, but uh, as you said, the the laws in the U.S. related to surveillance uh, in the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. those are, they're uh, over and above the consumer protection laws that we have in the U.S. And when we talk about privacy laws, we're mostly talking about consumer laws. So, in the U.S., it's more consumer-based versus human-based in the, the U.K. and the EU, and that's very different. So not every human is a consumer. So we have more gaps in our laws related to privacy uh, than you all have. But then there's this issue, and I feel like this issue is happening all around the world where 
surveillance seems to be people are kind of taking sides on the surveillance thing. So either we want a lot of it or we don't want any of it. And it's hard to, especially if that's the sticking point, you know, that's a, a point that a lot of people aren't going to come off of one way or another. There's several things I would ask people to consider about that. If EU law, as I understand it, its, it's foundation documents is the European, European Convention on Human Rights, or one of its parts of it. Right. Article 15 in the ECHR, which very rarely gets a mention, basically gives the state or government a cop-out of everything else that's produced. And it does that by virtue of uh, when there is an existential threat to the state, then the state can do whatever it needs to protect itself. Right. Now, to all intents and purposes, that's the way I see the Patriot Act, Cloud, FISA, and all the rest. Absolutely. The, the government has a duty to protect its citizens. Now, you can see the abrogation of the remainder of the rights to do with uh, data protection um, in Emergency Powers Act to do with COVID right. in pretty much every country, because basically the GDPR has been ignored by government for all sound reasons. And there has been an overemphasis, as far as I'm concerned, on the importance of the GDPR without putting it into context of the rest. Mm -hmm. And that, too, is something that I find curious. And I go back to the stuff I was doing on the MOD and its HS system. At one stage, uh, we were doing, was doing some work to do with something that the military do that's generally lethal. It, it, it doesn't matter. But basically, um, I had to ask, how long does this safety documentation need to be on the system? Um, and the reason was you could see that the size and footprint of a document file was growing from around about 360K kilobytes mm-hmm. to the biggest one was 75 megabytes because it contained... Everyone's being helpful. They put in images and videos and all the rest in what is nominally a Word file. Right. Now, I asked the question and I said, well, how? And the the response was, well, we've got to keep them for as long as the life of a human being. And the immediate response to that is, well, how long is that? And it worked out to, they they suggested uh, the working age from. 18 to 65, which meant, in principle, something like 50 years these things had to be hanging around. Now, the fallout from that is sizing and all that kind of stuff. You can't make these laws without about to do with tech, without understanding the nature of the implications for things way beyond processing, way beyond the idea of person. Right. Because this stuff has to sit there. It, it, it just does. And that is becomes more and more complicated the more and more stuff you, you store. And the longer you store it, too, because then you run into legacy issues, legacy systems. Yes. I mean, it, the, with the case of HATIS, there was it, the, uh, the intention was to, uh, for hazardous materials, which was several million items from the NATO stock catalogue, each with a health and safety sheet or a safety data sheet, each with multiple versions and what have you, and the growth in size from kilobytes of just plain text, ASCII text, right the way through to stuff carrying videos and all the rest, meant terabytes of storage provision needed to be made just for these forms. The thing about government is, if it makes rules, then the first thing it's got to do is abide by them. And in all government organisations, it doesn't matter which government it is, it really doesn't, 
um, there are probably server rooms like you wouldn't believe three or four stories down holding stuff. Yeah, totally. It's totally true. I want two things that you that you and I always talk about. Uh, I love to talk about. One is cookies. <laughs> cookies for me, I feel like there's this people last on the cookies in a way that's kind of unreal. And a lot of the, the legislation that people are passing about cookies is like, to me, it's like you're fixating on this particular way that data is, is deposited. But while you're doing that, other ways are being created that are probably much worse. So I feel like while people are talking about cookies, by the time these cases even get finished about cookies, we won't even be using them anymore. So I feel like we're sort of missing the point. It's like we're trying we're trying to say, you know, let's let's fight cookies, let's like come up with like some type of law uh, or thing about cookies, but you know, like they like I've done a video on beacons and other, you know, someone's gonna create something in two or three years is totally different. And then people are gonna try to chase that with the law. What are your thoughts? I am amused by the whole cookie saga for much the same kind of reason as you're describing. Um, there, there are several things that people don't seem to get just on the cookies. First of all, they can't track. And if I may, we'll come back to why I don't think Google is tracking either. Um, nor is Facebook, nor is anyone else. What there is is a massive collation exercise. But cookies themselves are binary value small files except that they're not anymore because each browser treats them differently. But they are not there to track. They perform the same kind of function as a Facebook beacon, for instance, which people have leapt on. Exactly. And you're quite right. Um, there are other more sophisticated tools and techniques in place that render, to my mind, cookies totally redundant. I, I don't understand the fascination at all. No, me either. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I, I published a DPIA on the um, donate button, and that, to my mind, illustrates the nature of why cookies aren't important. Uh, they're just not. Um, and there is another uh, website analytic tool that everyone seems to use, which, when you look at it, there are a variety of techniques employed to capture information about an end-user device. Um, there is a bit of code when I got it, when I worked out what it was doing, um, I was in awe of the coders who had written it because it was very, very smart. Um, but it had to do with the idea of page rendering and the sequence right. of page rendering from the point of request mm -hmm. on another device. Because what it did, this bit of code do, did, is uh, the bit of what they call, what is called asynchronous comms. In other words, a page can send a message back to a uh, host device server or something without the page refreshing or anything like that. It's all done in the background. The term for it, the acronym used is AJAX. Now, this particular bit of code was taking a 2,000 character footprint, uh, yeah, footprint, fingerprint rather, of every single visitor and every single page you, you use this uh, analytical tool on, it would take another fingerprint. Now, there isn't a cookie in sight, there isn't the placement of a cookie in that code at all. And as it happens, um, and I've said I'll send you the stuff later on, uh, there is another uh, exercise. And it, the, the more I see it, the more and more I think, well, nobody who knows what they're doing is using cookies anyway. No, why? <laughs> no, 
not not for tracking anyway. Absolutely not. I totally agree. Now, there's another thing that you talk about a lot, and I would love for you to expound upon that. And that is about, you know, you advocate that people, even people who think they understand privacy from a legal perspective, need to understand coding, codes, how to read code. Yeah, and uh, it's right. It's it's not a matter of being coding proficient. So the, I mean, I've been coding for 30 years, and there are people I think leave me for dead. It's not a matter about that, but it's understanding, uh, certainly when it comes to a website, which is by far the most popular means of connecting to the web nowadays, understanding things like page rendering, calls to computer data networks external to your own site, and understanding what's going, what's going on, and above all, to understand what's being, under, what's being delivered inside a client machine. Right. Now, that doesn't mean specifically being able to write code yourself, but it does, know, it does mean that you understand what's going on. And if you take uh, a library which is quite popular, a shareware library, I use it. I think it it's so saves so much time, it's just not real. A thing called jQuery. Now, if you know how to look in a page, then you can call jQuery from using a single uh, include statement in JavaScript. Uh, it doesn't actually, and that's only one line. But as the, depending on where you uh, request the library from, then what happens is the request is passed to the domain. Let's say it's on GitHub, GitHub or something. It uh, supplies the code. Uh, that the jQuery consists of. And jQuery consists of some 11,000 lines of code. Right. It's not a small thing by any stretch of the imagination. Now, uh, it's open source and all the rest. And open source is not without responsibility and liability. But what that means then is when you drop code into a client machine, as the site owner of the controller, you are responsible for understanding what that code actually does. Right. Now, you then extend that by the various add-ins, the jQuery UI and so on. Um, what you find is that the average web page, which may contain, say, a couple of thousand lines of HTML and a mix of JavaScript, actually becomes a very complex piece of software in its own right. So it's not so much being able to write this stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it, once you start coding, it's like a disease. It rocks your head. You just get fixated on solving a problem. It's just not real. Yeah. But it is understanding a bit more about what people like I get up to. There are more instances. Let's take the British Airways thing, which uh, has finally come to fruition. Oh, yeah. That's a good stuff. That's a classic skimming attack under the general banner mage cart. What skimming means was somebody got some code into somewhere in the BA world and it didn't go rooting through BA servers from where I gather, but actually latched onto uh, end user machines. Now, unless you know the nature of page rendering, at least in passing, and you know the importance of testing what goes on into a client side machine, then actually you are on an uh, almost the level of business risk is just unreal. And the way I try to point people at the nature of the legal risk, um, and I know this uh, e-privacy directive from the EU is, is shortened to be shelved for something else because it's too complicated to write. But as the document stands, page 3, para 24, describes the idea of a sphere of privacy. 
or a privacy sphere. And what that actually sets out is a boundary around an end user device that you should not cross without consent for just about anything. And every single geek I've shown it to has looked at it, read it, and had an oh my God moment because of what's going on in the pages they do. So it's, it's not so much to become a coder. Um, and actually the number of, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the number of verbs that people need to know about and to be able to detect isn't actually that many given the richness of JavaScript right now or PHP or all the rest. But there is a need to understand the kind of things that are going on when you call code from another machine anywhere in the world and what that machine delivers or may deliver, because basically what you're doing is surrendering control to the other machine. And it may only be for nanoseconds, but there's an awful lot you can get into a a client-side device in that very short period of time. Very true. It's that that I wish people would take more notice of. Um, If I mention a name, there's a guy called... uh, David Knickerbocker, he's doing some, uh, I think, really, really clever work on graph theory. And I'll lapse into geek speak for a little while, but it's about a different way of looking at data on an ontological basis. One of the things Amazon has sussed is the nature of the ontological relationships between things. Um, And if you don't know the code that is being dropped, then people like me can do all sorts with it. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons why the BA hack was so spectacular, I think, was because its nature was into a machine at the client side with most of the clients not even knowing, you know, just accepting this is BA and it must be right. But it clearly wasn't. Um, and it is to do with not using testing uh, websites and uh, code delivery into a client device. And it's relatively straightforward to do, but it, you do need to be more technically savvy than most people seem to be. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I would love for you to talk talk about terms and conditions. So no one wants to read these things, right? They're 80 pages long. People, you know, they... I think it's a psychological trick. So they know that people aren't going <laughs> to, they know that people don't want to read 80 pages. They just want to get on with what it, whatever it is they want to do. And, you know, you and I are, uh, you know, I do read the terms and conditions. So, uh, you know, it, it is very boring. Uh, it's very legalistic. Uh, but it's important because you really don't have any clue what it is exactly that these tools are doing unless you read that. No. Um, my introduction with, to TNCs was a task I did to do with a government outsourcing project. And my job on that was to take what was called the top 20 programs applications. And the reason they were called the top 20 was because they each had a maintenance thing, uh, annual maintenance fee of around about seven, six or seven figure maintenance fee. It was a due diligence exercise. And we went through them and had to go through them line by line. That was the job. Um, It was one of the most boring, (laughs) horrendous things I have ever done in my life. Um, I reckon um, the people who draft these things should have the patience of a saint. Um, But we had to go through line by line. And as we gained more knowledge, the more and more we noticed things that were actually legally very clever that played on 
a number of internal procedural disjoints that again nobody had had realised the nature of the risk. Um, and one of them was the acquisition process for large-scale programmes. And basically what I'm getting at when I say that is you get the person who requests a complex piece of software to be built will hand it over to an acquisition manager, in other words, somebody who knows how to source and buy something, who will then buy something, give it to somebody who is uh, the integration tester and what have you, and then it will eventually get to the point where it will be installed and the guy who's install, installing it will take a CD or whatever medium it is and install everything. Now, um, that's uh, quite common. And what the uh, majors do is they tailor their terms and conditions to the nature of the installations that are being carried out and the changing market conditions. And that's fine. Um, but what it means is that far too often more stuff has been installed than has been paid for. Um, and again, it comes a matter of uh, the nature of the terms and conditions are written to protect the intellectual property rights and so on of the people who are writing the software. Fair enough, it's a big investment. And to limit their legal liabilities, but at the same time transfer significant liabilities to the end user. So it's a responsibility to check this stuff on the basis, if nothing else, of caveat emptor. But as you say, people don't. Um, and the impact of that can be, it's just an, a, a, a business risk I would choose not to ignore. Um, and as a consequence now, every time I, I don't, I, if I can't write software, then I'll buy it and I'll buy it and I'll read the terms and conditions first before I'll consider buying. I mean, at one stage we had uh, a visit from a one of the heads of shed one of the majors and he brought with him a young technician and uh, what we did was we took the young technician into the sergeant's mess and got him legless and then grilled him uh, about what it actually meant i mean no names no pack drill but it, what they'd done has changed taken into account the idea of parallel processing multi-threaded processing and all the rest of it and we're adjusting their license terms to suit that now that's fine providing you understand it and you are aware, and far too many aren't. Right, exactly. So, Because what they were doing was uh, taking advantage, oh, sorry, exploiting the nature of the sophistication of processing that was becoming uh, possible, regardless of whether or not you actually use the stuff. And that, again, that's, there's nothing illegal going on. It's just good business from their perspective. But it is a matter of caveat emptor with a vengeance. And most recently, um, in fact, in the last couple of days, I found, uh, again, tracking down a cookie and what was being dropped. <laughs> um, I followed the uh, code. I now know roughly what the cookie does and where, what placing, who, what places the cookie, what the after effect of placing the cookie is, and perhaps more importantly, the nature of the licensing that's behind the hosting mechanism and what that does as far as I'm concerned, is means that pretty much ownership of the whole of the, the sites that use this capability rests with the people providing the hosting. So again, that's fine, but there is a matter of ownership in, in this, which is 
if not being abused, then it's definitely being played fast and loose with as far as I'm concerned. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think especially all, all these new technologies are coming out. They're almost assuming that you're like a, a cyber expert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that you would have to be to understand what's going on or how to really protect yourself. So it's like you're, you know, it's like giving a, a piece of steak to a baby. Yes. It is. I've, I've decided that when I go up to my fridge and it tells me I can't have any ice cream, me and it are going to fall out over an axe. That's right. Um, because that's what's happening. It, it, it's, it, you buy a fridge now and it, it, it's, it, uh, it's getting to the stage where you, you must have uh, spare IP capacity on your router and all the rest of it to get the bloody thing to work. But they're doing that for a reason. Yeah, exactly. I read somewhere that there has been a battle over the last few years to get inside the house, your domestic residence and all the rest of it. Uh, that's largely been sorted out. And I, I, yeah, I, think, I think we lost. Yeah, yes. So they're in the house. <laughs> like I say, uh, if the fridge says, no, you can't have any ice cream, it's getting it. There's no messing about. But it's, it's a matter of the nature of data gathering people use the word tracking i don't like it um because it implies tracking of individuals and i don't think they're doing that or rather some are but the vast majority aren't yeah jeff bezos came out with a quote about a shirt and what he said was i'm not particularly interested in one by one person buying a shirt but if i can get an interest on if i can get an idea of what five hundred thousand people who might like that shirt might be then that becomes extremely useful mm-hmm. and i think the a better way to look at it is that there is a massive collection and collation exercise from which you can draw fairly accurate inference about the way people are going to be living their lives, for want of a better phrase. Not in any detail. Absolutely. But in the nature of the things you are interested in, now it's absolutely the right thing to do, especially while it's feasible. Right. And you talked about uh, this mo- this film or this movie called Margin for Error. Yeah. And we're talking about skimming, skimming of tweets or just skimming in general. I think skimming illustrates that point really well about inference. Yes. They, um, if you cast your mind back to just after the GDPR came into the statute book, the, the UK ICO raided uh, Cambridge Analytica. And the ins and outs of the story are no doubt well publicised. But one of the things that uh, legislation like the GDPR hinges on is the idea of person as thing. Um, and PIIs, personal information identifiers, and all that, all that kind of thing. Well, if you have access to enough data, and this comes back to the ontology, the word ontology, um, the nature of the relationships between things that you can exploit, especially if you have composite data sets that are huge, above the terabyte level, um, then you can discover things about social economic groups and you don't need to target individuals to do that. No. What you do is identify the social economic groups and then just wait until they crop up on your radar and put the right stuff in front of them. You don't need to hunt them down. They'll turn up. Right. Now, this... Um, Margin for error is a slightly different take, as as I see it, on the CA thing, in that what they do is they take tweets and use them for polling purposes in the same way as Murray or Gallup do. 
uh, with the in, in, in aim of trying to identify uh, voting intent or anything really. There's no reason. It's just voting just happens to be the thing that's mentioned in the documentary. Now, that is something... One of the things they say in the program is that they do not target individuals. Um, what they are looking at is common words or phrases that score of interest to their customers. So eco-friendly words and phrases would tend to indicate that somebody is interested in uh, greenhouse gas kind of thing. Now, there are lots and lots of work. There's lots and lots of work going on under the banner of natural language processing and machine learning and so on, which means that if you can get access to that lots, lots and lots of data, you might not get it right the first time, you might not get it right the second, but it's just a natural maturity of, of, of processing capability because you will get it right. Yes. Now that becomes uh, something that if you can say that in such and such a state in the US, everyone, the vast majority are going to vote, vote Republican and you can do it accurately, then that's extremely valuable to politicians and a whole raft of other people besides. Yes, it's true. And that's the kind of thing that I think margin for error is about. It's not targeting individuals. It is identifying social economic groupings and trends amongst those social economic groupings of what they write and what they do and what they say. Now, again, it's just a different way of looking at vast quantities of data, but it's a valid way to do it, and it's actually extremely useful if you have a mind to do that. Correct. I agree. Well, we're ending at the top. At, we're at the end of our, our show today, and this is fascinating. You know, you and I, we could talk like this for hours. This is so bad. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to send you some stuff to look at. Uh, I mentioned this before the, the, the video, and it's about this cookie thing that I discovered the other day. Yes, I would love to read it. And it ties in TNCs and all of those things. It, it is um, a massively changing world. Yeah, it is. Totally. Totally. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This is so much fun. And I know that the, the listeners will really enjoy just listening to us talk. This is basically how we talk, right? <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. And, 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 and to be honest, I think um, there are a few people whose posts I regularly look at, and you're one of them. Oh, thank you so much. Well, that's me creeping for the month. Just wait till you get the bill. Oh, that's hilarious. That's so funny. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and I look forward to us talking and looking at the documents you're going to send me. Okay, no worries. Watch your inbox. Okay. Talk to you soon. <laughs>